Reflections on The Theology of the Body by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 2. You don't need any of this, but to, to some extent, I think this will help contextualize the situation. I, I often say that Christian truth is a little bit like uh, the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will not give us advisory opinions. In other words, if you say to the Supreme Court, I want to do something, it's going to cost lots of millions of dollars, and I want you to tell me whether or not it's constitutional. And the Supreme Court will say, well, we don't give advisory opinions. So you go spend your millions, and if somebody sues you, they'll bring you back here, and we'll tell you. <laughs> so at that point, you see, you'll have, a, you'll have standing. Well, the gospel is a little bit that way, too. It doesn't satisfy idle curiosity. It only provides new understandings when they're needed. It's on a need-to-know basis so that when different historical situations present themselves, different historical exigencies, crises of one kind or another, Christians think deeply if we're doing what we should be doing. We draw on the sources of our faith, and in doing that, new things come to flower in the way that Yves Dokimov says that the seeds planted by biblical thought take centuries to come to flower. But they also take historical shocks that cause them to flower, like these pine cones that only open in a forest fire or something like that. So the Pope's work on theology of the body does not come in a historical vacuum. It comes in the midst of a massive crisis in the Western world, the crisis of human intimacy, the crisis of eros, if you will, the crisis of relationships. We live in a world where the sacramental mystery of marriage has been lost. The meaning of sexuality is completely erased, the deep meaning, and so on. So he's speaking this to a world that's in desperate need of it. So having said that, now I'm going to try to flesh that out, pardon the metaphor. And first of all, an analogy to a comparable situation I think might be helpful. Heinrich Henna is a 19th century German-Jewish poet who converted to Christianity. And in a powerful prophetic thing that he wrote in the mid-19th century, Henna's prophecy that I'm about to share with you could be put beside the prophetic writings of Nietzsche as the two great voices, in a way. Nobody knows about Henna, but he saw things that had enough people noticed, we might have annealed ourselves against the Nietzschean madness that was going to come a few decades later. And he's not speaking about the issues that we're talking about. He's speaking about issues having to do with cultural violence. But it's, I think, an apt analog for what's happened in the area of human intimacy. He says, quote, It is to the great merit of Christianity that it has somewhat attenuated the brutal German lust for battle. But it could not destroy it entirely. And should ever that taming talisman, the cross, break, then will come roaring back the wild madness of the ancient warriors of whom our Nordic poets speak and sing with all their insane berserker rage. The berserkers, you know, were Norse warriors who were known for their absolutely unquenchable lust for blood. So that's what the word berserker means. So he says, if ever the cross should break and stop having its influence, that pagan bloodlust will come right up out of the soil again. That talisman, he says, that cross is now already crumbling, and the day is not far off when it shall break apart entirely. On that day, the old stone gods will rise from long-forgotten wreckage and rub from their eyes the dust of a thousand years' sleep. At long last, leaping to life, Thor, with his giant hammer, will crush the Gothic cathedral. Laugh not at my forebodings, the advice of a dreamer who warns you away from the Kants and fictas of this world, the German idealist philosophers, and from our philosophers of nature, like Rousseau and his offspring. No, laugh not at the visionary who knows that in the realm of phenomena comes soon the revolution that has already taken place in the realm of the spirit. 
For thought goes before deed as lightning before thunder. There will be played in Germany a play compared to which the French Revolution is but an innocent idol. End quote. Middle of the 19th century. Well, a comparable warning could be uttered and in fact has been uttered in our time and it was uttered by a number of people but I'm going to call your attention to T.S. Eliot's version of it. But in working my way up to that, let me say something again about the damask glove seat and the dangerous room. David Crawford, writing in Communio, has said, quote, if man is, quote, made for love, and if this ordination is inscribed in his very nature as a bodily creature, it is precisely in the disordering of the passions and desires, which should be directed to this love, that sin exacts its greatest penalty. So if we're made for love, that's absolutely essential to us. If that is disordered, the worst will happen. If that is transformed by grace, the best will happen, sanctification. And if it is perverted, the very worst will happen. So the best becomes the worst. And Eve Dokimov, Paul Eve Dokimov, the Orthodox writer I referred to before, says something along the same lines. All the contradictions of human nature are manifested in sexual life. For it is there that human nature is most vulnerable and carries a deep wound. When sexual attraction is impersonal, it is the source of the most odious profanations and of the most humiliating enslavement of the human spirit. It is not then the unique mystery that is sought, but the autonomy and the moment and the brief eternity of pleasure that are sought and desired. Freed from sexual taboos, perfected techniques sharpen the perverted senses of eroticism and descend below the animal, and man drinks his shame and his sickness. So that's a warning about the dangerous room where the damask love seat is. Echoing our faith, René Girard has said that the New Testament contains what amounts to a genuine epistemology of love. Epistemology means how we come to know things. The New Testament shows us about the power of love to reveal the truth to us. That's what he's saying. Love is the source of truth, and the New Testament shows us how it is the source of truth. Compared to that insight, you have Nietzsche. Now, this, I'm, what I'm doing is the genealogy of the crisis. We're in a crisis, and I'm doing a little bit of a genealogy of it. Even the notion of a genealogy, I'm borrowing from Nietzsche, so that's not fair. It's not the right place to borrow. Anyway, but I'm going to talk about Nietzsche. Just a word about Nietzsche. You don't need to know about this, but this is just the footnote. Gerard says, the New Testament is a source of a genuine epistemology of love. Love, as the New Testament reveals it to us, is a source of knowledge. Nietzsche, on the other hand, says, quote, Love is the state in which man sees things most decidedly as they are not, as an illusion. The force of illusion reaches its highest here in this madness. When a man is in love, he endures more than at any other time, and he submits to anything, end quote. And Nietzsche thinks like a pagan that this is simply an illusion you have to get over. You cannot indulge yourself with this kind of illusion. Now Nietzsche despised Christianity, but he despised as well the half-hearted rejection of it that the Enlightenment brought about. See, there were people who wanted to do away with it, but they were essentially still using the Christian ethos. They were still championing victims. They still wanted to do the right thing. They were still more or less abiding by, roughly by a Christian moral ethic and so on. And Nietzsche hated Christianity and he hated these people who rejected it in such a timid way. Nietzsche saw all of that as a residue of Christianity and he called for an all-out attack on it. He says, quote, up to the present, the assault against Christianity has not only been faint-hearted, it has been wide of the mark. 
So long as Christian ethics are not felt to be the capital crime against life, the defenders of Christianity will have the game in their hands. It is not enough, he says, to reject Christian creedal claims, to reject Christianity. We have to reject Christian ethics. Going on, he says, the problem of the truth of Christianity, the existence of its God or the historicity of its legends, to say nothing of its astronomy and its natural science, is in itself a very subsidiary problem so long as the value of Christian ethics goes unquestioned. And he says we must reject Christian ethics if we're really going to do away with Christianity. He saw something that nobody else saw. Now to return to what we're concerned about here, which is the sexual ethics, let's put it this way. The ethic of relationships, the sexual ethic of Christianity, is what makes it possible for most of us to experience the Christian mystery. The Christian mystery is loving self-donation. It's loving self-donation. Christian sexual ethics guards and nourishes that mystery. If you can destroy that ethic, you can destroy what makes it possible for most people to experience the Christian mystery. And therefore, you can destroy Christianity without questioning any of its creedal claims. Because you destroy it existentially, not theologically. Do you see what I'm saying? You destroy the capacity of people to experience the Christian mystery, the place where they're most predisposed to experience it. That mystery of falling in love is a place that is most predisposed by nature to the mystery of loving self-donation. And if you can take away the ethic that hallows that experience, you can destroy Christianity without having even to question its cradle claim. And this is, in fact, what is happening in our world. Christianity is not suffering from theological attacks or philosophical attacks. It's suffering from a massive benign neglect. You see what I mean? People shrug. What does it mean? We have to have some experience of the Christian mystery. And most of us have had that experience in relationships to others and most especially in relationships to people that we're close to of the opposite sex. So Nietzsche understood that. So the point is here not to moralize about the catastrophes that are now happening in the sexual arena. There's plenty of room for moralizing. I'd be in favor, actually, of a little more moralizing. But fundamentally, the Pope does not want to moralize. As a matter of fact, in large measure, the reason he wrote The Theology of the Body, or the reason he, he launched this investigation, is because he felt that Humanae Vitae had failed. And it had failed because there was too much moralizing and not enough anthropology. And we have to have an anthropological analysis and not simply a moral one. See, what is being betrayed is not a set of moral standards, but what is being betrayed is our humanity. So I'm going to look at some things now that because you're healthy, that will cause moral revulsion in you. That's a sign of life. But it's not that that we're after. What I'm trying to do is simply paint a picture that you're already completely familiar with, but to show the barrenness of it. And this now is a very famous passage in T.S. Eliot's Wasteland. T.S. Eliot is prophetic in the same way that Heinrich Kenner was prophetic of the Nazis when he said, as soon as the Christian things get pushed aside, the German gods will arise and lay waste the cathedrals of Europe, symbolically speaking. In the same way that he's prophetic of that, Eliot, writing in the 20s, is prophetic 
of what has happened in the area of sexual relationships. And in this poem, the speaker is Tiresias, the figure in classical literature, who's both male and female, and who's a prophet, and who sees all things, and has lived forever, and so on. At the violet hour, when the eyes and back turn upward from the desk, when the human engine waits, like a taxi throbbing, waiting, I, Tiresias, though blind, can see at the violet hour, the evening hour that strives homeward, the typist home at tea time, clears her breakfast, lights her stove, lays out food in tins. Out of the window perilously spread her drying combinations, touched by the sun's last rays. On the divan are piled, at night her bed, stockings, slippers, camisoles, and stays. I, Tiresias, old man with wrinkled dugs, perceived the scene and foretold the rest. I, too, awaited the unexpected guest. He, the young man carbuncular, arrives, a small house agent's clerk with one bold stare, one of the low on whom assurance sits as a silk hat on a Bradford millionaire. The time is now propitious, as he guesses, the meal is ended, she is bored and tired, endeavors to engage her in caresses, which still are unreproved if undesired. Flushed and excited, he assaults at once. Exploring hands encounter no defense. His vanity requires no response and makes a welcome of indifference. I, Tiresias, have foresuffered all exacted on this same divan or bed. I, who have sat by Thebes below the wall and walked among the lowest of the dead, he bestows one final patronizing kiss and gropes his way, finding the stairs unlit. So this barren encounter and this last little Dantean image of groping down unlit stairs into the pits of hell, you see, bestows one final patronizing kiss the one-night stand, and down he goes. Elizabeth Drew refers to this scene as a ghastly parody of the fertility ritual, but Alan Pate, the Catholic poet, got it right when he said, this scene is a masterpiece, perhaps the most profound vision we have of modern man. What Tate saw was that it's not about sexuality. It's about autonomy. It's about a perversion of our humanity where we begin to treat each other as objects and not as persons. So the sexual catastrophe in our world is not about sex. It's about the mystery of the person. Now I'm going to continue with the poem because it doesn't end there. He stumbles down the stairs unlit. Meanwhile, she turns and looks a moment in the glass, hardly aware of her departed lover. Her brain allows one half-formed thought to pass. Well, now that's done and I'm glad it's over. When lovely woman stoops to folly and paces about her room again alone, she smooths her hair with automatic hand and puts a record on the gramophone that line and puts a record on the gramophone is so powerful there. You see? Just something to cover it up. Something that will come along to kind of keep it out of my mind. Now that's done and I'm glad it's over. It's a terrible indictment that Eliot makes in the 20s. And in the 20s it was far off in terms of how widespread this is today. But already he was seeing it. One more literary reference and then a few contemporary ones. And by that time, if I haven't ruined your appetite, we will break for lunch. I want to read you a couple of sonnets by Edna St. Vincent Millay. Now, Edna St. Vincent Millay was a gifted poet, but she's really documenting the same thing Eliot is documenting, only she's 
documenting it as uh, an explorer of it rather than an observer of it. There was a review of a new biography of Edna St. Vincent Millay in Harper's Magazine in July. Christina Nearing wrote the review, and in it she says that Millay's collection of love sonnets, quote, may be the most unflinching and various explorations of the self in love by any poet in English since John Donne. Well, I'm not so sure. Certainly unflinching, we can say that. But Ms. Nearing is right, no doubt, when she marvels about the effect that Millay's poetry had, quote, on the budding feminists who were, in Miss Nearing's breathless prose, buoyed by this champion of fleeting physical pleasure, short and savage, end quote. Well, that they were fleeting encounters and that in their poetic half-life, at least they may have been lyrical and poignant, can be granted, but they pulsate more uh, with contempt than you would think would be appropriate for a love sonnet. So here they are. I'm going to read two of them. Not because we're doing literary analysis, but because this is a... An, a glimpse into the world of the 40s, which is two decades after Eliot gave us his prophecy. She writes, I shall forget you presently, my dear, so make the most of this your little day, your little month, your little half a year, ere I forget or die or move away. And we are done forever by and by. I shall forget you, as I said, but now, if you entreat me with your loveliest lie, I will protest you with my favorite vow. I would indeed that love were longer lived, and oaths were not so brittle as they are, but so it is, and nature has contrived to struggle on without a break thus far, whether or not we find what we are seeking is idle, biologically speaking. Now, there's a love sonnet. You see? What kind of love sonnet is that? You see? It's just the same thing as Nietzsche, saying it's all an illusion. Let's enjoy the illusion temporarily if we want to, but let's don't kid ourselves. In another, she says, I, being born a woman and distressed by all the needs and notions of my kind, am urged by your propinquity to find your person fair and feel a certain zest to bear your body's weight upon my breast. So subtly is the fume of life designed to clarify the pulse and cloud the mind. And leave me once again undone possessed. Think not for this, however, the poor treason of my stout blood against my staggering brain. I shall remember you with love or season my scorn with pity. Let me make it plain. I find this friend the insufficient reason for conversation when we meet again. That's unflinching. Miss Nearing is right. It's unflinching. But what is it saying? Well, it's just literature, is it not? Last month, in the Washington Post, there appeared a story subtitled Sex in High School and College, What's Love Got to Do With It? End quote. A high school girl was interviewed, a number of high school and college girls were interviewed. An 11th grader spoke of these casual sexual encounters with friends, in this case, half a dozen boys. No strings attached, at parties mostly, on the weekend, in closets, bathrooms, parents' bedrooms, friends' parents' bedrooms. Quote, from September to December, it was a blur. Let's see, I hooked up, this word, hooked up. I'm not patronizing when I say, thank God you wonderful people in Casper may not even know about these things. I, I hope it lasts forever. But the, the, it is happening, and it's mad. This is hooking up is the now a very, very big thing on college campuses and increasingly in high school. 
So she said, I hooked up with, hmm, I'll call him Rob, and then Rob introduced me to Paul, and Paul to Colin, and Colin to BT, and Brad and Steve. I was having so much fun, I didn't even think of having a serious relationship. There was no romance, none, end quote. Now, when the people covering this story tell us that some of these liaisons did not include intercourse, we are not to be terribly heartened by that because many of these relationships were, how shall I say, Clinton-esque. I'm not trying to just pander to your shock. I'm saying this is what is happening to the mystery that is the key at the natural level to the discovery of the Christian mystery. No wonder we're having a problem. Quoting from the article, the sexual liberation of the 1960s shattered the rules and rituals of romance for women in their 20s. It was just a matter of time before their younger sisters embraced the same freedom. The girl hookup culture is known in some circles as Allie McBeal feminism. Now, I don't know who Allie McBeal is, but I know it was a television program. But this hooking up culture is now called Allie McBeal feminism. Many girls don't have the time or energy required for an intense relationship right now, or they can't find a guy who wants one, but they possess enormous sexual energy and believe that they have every right to enjoy it in whatever form they choose, just as the Fox Network's lusty lawyer did. So you may know more about the background of that than I do. The Post interviewed a student from Bethesda, Maryland's Walt Whitman High School. The fact that it was Walt Whitman High School tells you something. There's a kind of irony involved, painful, terrible irony at this poor girl's expense that she's coming out of a high school or a world which regards Walt Whitman's poetry as something worthy of naming a high school after him. Don't, maybe you love Walt Whitman, but these things have consequences. Anyway, at Walt Whitman's annual fling, which is known as Beach Week, the students go with lists of people they're going to hook up with. One of the things that you don't notice in these stories is what's in between the lines. That it's Walt Whitman High School, it's one thing. Maybe that's too esoteric. But that it's Beach Week. Beach Week, that's the formal name for this spring break. Wasn't it once called something else? Wasn't it once called Easter Break? Does it tell you something? That it's now called Beach Week? You see what's happening? Put these two things together. Beach Week has turned into this pagan event, the emotional and psychological scars of which might last a lifetime. Used to be called Easter Break. Now, I remember Easter Break. We weren't exactly Boy Scouts. But nevertheless, <laughs> there, was a, there was a connection to something else. So this is all part of the world we're in. Kids make a distinction between casual sex and relationship sex, said the psychologist who was interviewed about this. But then there's a feminist element. By the way, don't get me wrong about this, but another girl who's interviewed, she's going to Eleanor Roosevelt High School. Now, Eleanor Roosevelt was a marvelous woman who represents a kind of feminism that is worth our admiration. But now we come to Allie McBeal feminism coming out of Eleanor Roosevelt High School. The girl says, she's in control, meaning I'm in control. That's what many girls want, says this freshman at Brown University. And she relates a story about a friend who hooks up with a young man that she's known for a while. She wants the guy to know that she's using him just as much as he's using her. That's what Edna St. Vincent Millay was saying in her poetry. The article says, hooking up requires no commitment of time or emotion. You can hook up once during a party, once again after the party with someone else, later in the week with somebody else. It seems the perfect entertainment for young women planning to graduate cum laude and take up medicine or law. It's amazing. Well, what's the outworking of that in our culture? I'll conclude this grim thing with one entertaining article before we go. But to set it up, an article in USA Today that appeared couple of weeks ago that I saw. The title of the article is, When I Do Becomes I Don't Want To. And the article talks about the millions, in this article's estimation, 40 million people who are in marriages that have ceased to be physically amorous at all. And it says, 
It is not just the women who say no. Sex therapists, researchers, marital counselors, as well as some divorce lawyers are concerned about the increasing numbers of men of all ages who rarely desire their wives sexually or rarely have sexual fantasies about them. There's all of this madness, no commitment. The I do makes it legal, it's proximate, it's daily. Something's happening. It's a catastrophe. I will close the morning and then we'll have a little discussion. I'm indulging myself because this is a funny article. It was in Atlantic Monthly last month. And it's called Wifely Duty uh, by Caitlin Flanagan. And she's a good writer. And she's talking about this thing, which is marriages have become emotionally, amorously, erotically dead for a lot of people. And she's writing this article about it. It's quite funny, but it also points to the kind of crisis that the Pope is addressing. She says, American adults under the age of 50 tend to know more about sex and its many delightful permutations than did streetwalkers of an earlier century. (laughs) Yuppies, with that winsome arrogance that is all their own, proudly describe the nature and frequency of their premarital couplings with the specificity matched only by advanced seminars on animal husbandry. (laughs) The reason abortion rights hold such a sanctified position in American political life is that they are a critical component of the yuppie program for maximum personal sexual pleasure. Let, Let me say something there. I don't know where to begin, but the idea of choice, in order to take the word choice seriously, you have to assume that people are going to take responsibility for their choices. In the whole abortion thing, the word choice is used to obscure the fact that what is happening is that people are refusing to take responsibility for their choices. But why is it happening? I think Flanagan is right. It's an integral part of this catastrophe that's happening. She goes on, And let these inebriates of Nuki intermarriage, a state in which ongoing sexuality often has as much to do with old-fashioned notions of obligation and commitment as it does with the immediate satisfaction of intense physical desire, and they grow cold and limp as yesterday's cob salad. All this makes me reflect, she says, on those repressed and much-pitied 1950s wives, their sexless college years, their boorish husbands who couldn't locate the clitoris with a flashlight and a copy of Grey's Anatomy. Sorry for that. I know this is a church basement, but it's a funny story. (laughs) Those poor women were apparently getting a lot more action than many of today's most liberated and sexually experienced married women. (laughs) Perhaps as some feminists would have us believe, these were grimly efficient interludes during which the poor humped-upon wife stared at the ceiling and silently composed the grocery list. (laughs) But maybe not. The notion that female sexuality was unleashed 40 years ago after lying dormant low these uncountable millennia (laughs) is silly. More recent is the sexual shutdown that apparently takes place in many marriages as soon as they have been legalized. Now, finally, the last one. Again, it's funny. She's a good writer. I'm just indulging myself. She says, so here it is, people are just bored with sexuality and intimacy and it doesn't mean it. Or they just kind of lead parallel lives. She says, quote, Pity the poor married man hoping to get a bit of comfort from the wife at the end of the day. He must somehow seduce a woman who is economically independent of him, bone-tired, philosophically disinclined to have sex unless she jolly well is in the mood, numbingly familiar with his every sexual maneuver, and still doing a slow burn over his failure to wipe down the countertops and fold the dish towel after cooking the kids' dinner. And then she says, he can hardly be blamed for opting instead to check his email, catch a few minutes of Sports Channel, and call it a night. So how do you add spice to your relationship when it's kind of gone flat? You know? So they're producing all of these kind of psychobabble sex manuals 
about how to do the little things that make it all work and no serious analysis of what's going on. Mick Jagger said it all 25 years ago, I can't get no satisfaction. And there's something even appropriate about his double negative there, his grammatical error. I mean, the idea of getting satisfaction, you see, as soon as that enters, it's the, the relationship has been objectified. And you're talking about using the other, and there is no way. And he's absolutely right. So Mick Jagger has declared a truth. <laughs> this is the catastrophe that the Pope is addressing. And it's everywhere in our world. Terrible versions of it that are affecting largely the young people and other versions of it that are affecting uh, some people that are older. Having said that, we will turn after lunch to what the Pope has to tell us about that, but we do have five minutes or so to talk, or maybe ten, if you have some things you want to throw in, or there's something, I may have, I must have probably said some things that confused you or didn't work or something. A wedge that was driven into this early on was that Christianity is over here. Christianity is about what you believe and what you do on Sunday morning or something like that. And then sexual things, that doesn't really matter. Between consenting adults, nobody's hurt and so on and so forth. So that it's not a big deal. You see, the idea that, well, what you do, I mean, it's as long as you think morally, if you think purely in moral terms, in terms of Christian morality, you're right about how bad that situation is. But at the same time, it's easier to slough it off if people don't buy it. They say, well, that's your morality, it's not mine. And that's why the Pope is saying a moral condemnation of it or a moral judgment of it or a moral analysis of it is not going to do the job. Because people can say, well, fine, I just don't share that moral perspective. So what he's trying to say is that something fundamentally human is being destroyed and perverted here. And it's not a matter of it not mattering if it's between consenting adults. That something is happening there that's a betrayal of our humanity and our call to love. I do want to talk towards the end of our session today about the celibate vocation. It is a matter of falling in love. And I remember having a, a conversation with two a very good priest friends of mine in Oklahoma and we were talking about, this was a year and a half ago, and the sexual scandals were raging. And all of the, that, that was before it became clear the, the nature of this sexual scandal, which was, you know, it wasn't priests going off and having affairs with beautiful women. It was something else. And so at that time, people were saying, oh, well, we just need to do away with celibacy. You know, we just have a... And these two friends of mine, we were talking at dinner, and they said, and one of them was a great priest, he said, uh, somebody's got to love the church the most. And that's what we're called to do. And we're married to the church. And it's a, that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful gift to, to love the church as much as I love it. And to be, and to get, have the opportunity to give my life to it as fully as I it was a beautiful witnessing to a love affair. I mean, obviously, he's in love with Christ, but it's the body of Christ as the church to be in love with the church and to daily self-donate to the church. And that picks up on what the Pope is talking about in terms of loving self-donation. It's the only way to fulfill our calling as a human being. And what the celibates have given to the church is incalculable. There's a charism that comes out of celibacy that is just unbelievable. Loving self-donation is the fulfillment of our deepest human calling. There are some things that I'll share with you from the Pope's work. He has some marvelous things to say about, obviously, as you can imagine, the celibate life. Now we're going to get to some of the Pope's thoughts on these matters, and it's going to be a little bit of a rocky road in the sense that I'm going to go from quotation to quotation and reflect on various things and it may not be a smooth transition from one thing to the next but 
it's the best I could do in terms of putting before you what I think are the seminal issues in the Pope's work. So the Pope begins with the passage in Matthew where the Pharisees testing Jesus say to him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, John Paul points out that it's to be noticed that Jesus responds by this reference to the beginning and to Genesis, which is, in light of the way we now speak, an anthropological reference. Jesus goes back not to Moses, which is what the question is about, because Moses allowed divorce under certain circumstances. No, but Jesus leapfrogs over that and goes back to the beginning. And he says, from the beginning, he made them male and female. Now, one of the most important passages in all of Scripture in terms of human anthropology is Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, which says, he made them in his image, comma, male and female he made them. And the question is, is there a relationship between these two parts of that verse? He made them in his image, and he made them male and female. And I think we have every reason to connect these two things. Why did he make them male and female? Because he was making them in his image. Now, I'm getting way ahead of the story here. This text, of course, comes from a long time ago. And it comes from centuries before, millennia before, uh, the church fathers discovered the doctrine of the Trinity. But they did discover the doctrine of the Trinity because they saw that in order to understand Christ, you had to understand His relationship to the Father and the way in which that relationship was communicated to humanity by the Spirit. So the thing about God that Jesus reveals is the loving self-donation that takes place even in the Godhead, even prior to creation. That there is a loving self-donation between the persons of the Trinity. The word person is now in our vocabulary because the church fathers were the first to use it with any kind of seriousness. The, the term had no significant meaning. At least the term in Latin, persona, had no significant meaning until the church fathers began to talk about the persons of the Trinity and the interrelationship of the persons of the Trinity. So the very word person implies communication with the other. And that's another story which we can get into later. But the point is that we're made in the image and likeness of God. In exactly what way are we made in the image and likeness of God? What is it that's most essential about God that is part of how we are made? We are made male and female. Why are we made male and female? Hold that thought. Hold that thought. We'll come back to it because I realize I'm getting way ahead. Let me just stick with Matthew. So Jesus says, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? And you can imagine that the Pharisees are looking completely dumbfoundedly at Jesus. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. So he's quoting from Genesis. So they are no longer two, but one. Now, Jesus is referring to the union of man and woman not as a contract, not as a social contract, not as an arrangement between two autonomous individuals who decide for various utilitarian reasons or whatever that it would be more comfortable to be in some kind of relationship than not. But something profound has happened here. And the, when the Bible talks about this, it talks about it in terms of a profundity. That is to say, they have become one. 
So what has happened is not that two autonomous beings have entered into some kind of a contractual relationship, but that two beings have become a different kind of being. That they have become a different kind of being. Namely, they have become a human being. That it is precisely in that relationship that we have the origin of our humanity. Now, we'll come to that in a few minutes. But this passage in Matthew is pregnant with this sort of anthropological revelation, and the Pope has taken some time to tease it out. Then Jesus says, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. In this man and woman relationship, what has been altered is not their contractual situation. What's been altered is their ontological situation. I'm sorry to use that word, big fat word. Ontology simply means the nature of our being. Jesus is referring to an ontological alteration. So that you're one kind of being before and you're a different kind of being after. And the the sacraments of the church preside at this ontological shift. They mark it and celebrate it, define it, and inform it, and nurture it. So there's an ontological shift that takes place. There's a certain kind of boom, and then there's a communion, the communio personarum, the Pope calls it, the communion of persons into a new being. And that new ontology, that new being, because it is not a contractual phenomenon, cannot be contractually uh, disassembled. It's an ontological phenomenon. And therefore, to disassemble it is a, is a rending of being. It's not a contractual thing. So Jesus, this, the Pharisees, are thinking about Moses and the laws. And John Paul knows that we Catholics have tended to think about the rules and the laws. And he is, as you well know, as faithful to those rules and laws as anybody and as uh, insistent that we obey them. So this is no, this is no uh, nominalist rejection of that. But he's saying we have to account for those laws in terms of anthropology and not in terms of some kind of abstracted rules and regulation. Those laws exist in order to protect a real ontological phenomenon that is real, though largely invisible. We cannot see what has happened here. It still looks like John and Mary are John and Mary just like they were ten minutes ago. But something else, if a real marriage has happened, has taken place ontologically. And they are, they are different as a result of that. And in some ways you could say the church's sacraments exist to bring to visibility this thing that is invisible so that it can be hallowed and so that one can be faithful to it. So then they say, well, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? So Moses allows divorce and Jesus says, you can't do it. It's a violation of the being of the covenant couple. And so why did Moses allow it? Jesus says, for your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife. But from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, another reference back to what? To the origin of humanity. Now, this is how the gospel is. This thing has been sitting there in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke for a long time and nobody that I'm aware of noticed it except John Paul noticed it in the beginning. He's quoting Genesis. Well, we noticed that before but we didn't pay any attention to it. We didn't acknowledge its significance. If Jesus had quoted Shakespeare, we would have scrambled to look up the citation and figure out, wonder why he quoted that. You know what I mean? He must be on to something. What was it? Well, he quoted Genesis and we don't we think, "Oh well." But he goes back. Now, we 
Christians believe in, we understand ourselves in terms of something called original sin. Our faith has told us, and we experience it in our own lives, that we're fallen, broken people. That something's wrong. Something's wrong with us. And it hasn't always been wrong. There's something about our creation that is good. God created the world and He said, it is good. Created human beings that it is very good. So there is an origin here that is pristine. And then there is the fall. And then we are into the world that Jesus describes as the world of the hard-hearted. So we have to follow this clue, and this is what uh, John Paul has done. Follow Jesus' clue. In the beginning, it was not so. Just two weeks ago, the Pope gave an address in Rome, and he touched on the crisis of marriage. He said at the beginning of that address, this topic is especially close to my heart, as we know. He says, distancing oneself from God necessarily implies a proportionate dehumanizing of all family relationships. In the fullness of time, however, Jesus restored the primordial design of marriage. And that's another reference to what Jesus is doing in Matthew here, he says. I understand, yes, you're hard-hearted. Moses took account of that and so on and so forth. But in the beginning, it was not so. One has to go back and look at the beginning. Look how we humans are made. As a result of the restoration of the mystery of marriage by Jesus, the Pope says, quote, the union between man and woman not only regains its original holiness, but this union is thereby inserted into the very mystery of the covenant of Christ with his church. As I was saying to somebody at lunch, astonishingly, the Pope is saying is not that marriage fits inside Christianity, but that Christianity fits inside marriage. That Christianity is fundamentally a discovery a rediscovery, a reordering, a restoration by Christ of the nuptial mystery. Experienced in all of its registers, not simply experienced in sexual relationships, but experienced in all of its registers. So that marriage becomes the fundamental metaphor for Christian life. Loving self-donation, the nuptial Self-donation becomes the fundamental metaphor for Christian life. In this most recent address, John Paul quoted Pope Leo XIII's 1880s encyclical in which he observed that, quote, from the very beginning, marriage was a figure of the incarnation of the Word of God. That marriage is a prefiguration, if you will, of the incarnation. What this suggests, John Paul says, is that, quote, before the incarnation of the Word took place historically, its effective holiness was already being bestowed on humanity, end quote. If we were all Ph.D. theologians, you would be gasping for breath. <laughs> That's an amazing thing. You see? Before the incarnation of the Word took place historically, its effective holiness was already being bestowed on humanity in the marriage of man and woman. The union of the man and woman in marriage prefigures, but not just prefigures in the sense of prophetically prefigures, but is already a living out in its own way of the union of God and man in the incarnation and the union of Christ and the church in history. But that is already the working out of it. So, we have to put a huge amount of emphasis on the Genesis story, which tells us that the beginning coincides with the union of the man and the woman. John Paul says, When Christ 
said, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? He ordered us, and he still orders us, to return to the depths of the mystery of creation. Now, the mystery of creation culminates in the creation of humanity. So we have to ask the question about the birth of humanity. Now, a key to understanding or even beginning to get a feel for the way in which the Pope is changing the rules of the road, theologically, is to shake off some of the intellectual accretions of the last while. All of us, regardless of what we may think about Darwin or anything else, think in evolutionary terms. And that's very fine to a certain extent. Certainly there's been natural evolution. But we insert into our evolutionary thinking something that is antithetical to biblical thought. And that is some kind of naive naturalism. The naive naturalism would say, okay, let's take, for example, gender differentiation. So let's forget the Bible says he made male and female. Well, we don't know what that was about. But you wake up in the morning, you step out of the shower, you look down, you say, well, we're different. So why are we different? Well, let's see. Naive naturalism. You go back and you say, well, there was parts in the Genesis. There was reproduction prior to sex in natural organisms. Cellular split and that sort of stuff. And then nature, usually nature is then given personified sort of nature discovered that genetic creativity is immensely enhanced by sexual differentiation. You can do a whole lot more evolving in a much shorter period of time if you mix the gene pool in the way that the gene pool gets mixed when you have sexual differentiation. So you have sexual differentiation. So now you have a female unit and a male unit and they come together and produce more interesting genetic structures. So we're looking back as naive naturalists. We're trying to explain the fact that we're sexually differentiated. And so, well, nature did that and nature did the other thing and it worked and evolved and then we had tree, tree shrews and one thing and another and then after a long while, us. So that's why there's sexual differentiation. If that's true, then sexual differentiation is a purely natural phenomenon. And all the urges that go along with it are purely natural phenomena. So that when you feel these urges, that's simply nature calling. And the reason nature is calling is because you should just go take care of whatever the natural urge is. You see, And anything that constrains that is an artificial constraint. And in some ways is an affront to this robust, Rousseau-esque, marvelous nature. Well, the Pope says, you look at the facts of sexual differentiation and because you have come to know a God of providential love and immense patience, you interpret it differently. You do not say, why is there sexual differentiation? I have to look back and see where it came from. You say, there's sexual differentiation. Why? Where is it going? What's it for? See, not where did it come from, but what is its purpose? Not just what is its natural purpose, its reproductive purpose, its genetic purpose, but what is its human purpose? When we look back and see all of the stuff I just described in terms of natural evolution, the question is, what is all that? Paul says, all creation is groaning unto now in labor pain. Waiting for what? Waiting to produce this. What? Christ, the Incarnation. What is it? As the Pope says, even prior to the Incarnation, at the birth of humanity itself, already you have the beginning of the Incarnation in the sense that you have a religious event happening between a man and a woman which brings humanity into existence. The joining of the man and the woman is at the same time the entering of God and the Spirit into this creature. So we have to dispense with naturalism. We have to ask, why are we sexually differentiated in terms of what is its goal? What is the goal of sexual differentiation? If the goal of sexual differentiation is just a greater genetic potential, then what, really? 
But if the goal of sexual differentiation is the mystery of selfless, loving self-donation and congruent with that mystery, the birth of humanity itself. Now, let's be playful. Let's imagine that what God wants to bring into being is a creature made in his own image. What is God's image? Pure Trinitarian self-donation. The Father exists to glorify the Son and the Son to glorify the Father and the Spirit to glorify the relationship between the two. The Trinity is constantly self-donated. That's what Trinitarian love is all about. So the God of the Trinitarian love wants to bring into being a creature made in that image. That is to say, a creature that will be caught and so compelled by a feeling of love that he will take this enormous risk of turning himself over to the other completely. So this is the kind of creature we're looking for here. And God is immensely patient. So he brings about sexual differentiation at the cellular level and waits. Millions of years. In the meantime, this is nothing we have to notice. The further back you go, the less intense the sexual attraction and the more reproductive capacity. At the cellular level, there's almost no sexual energy at all and there's a huge amount of reproduction. In the lower creatures, you have one fish lays eggs and swims off and the male fish comes over and fertilizes them and there's a pretty technical affair. I mean, but it's not exactly intimacy. You see what I mean? Huge amount of reproductive capacity. Very little potential for connection between the male and the female. The further up you come, the more the emotional intensity and the lower the reproductive potential. In us human beings, capacity for reproduction is one and the intensity is very high. So, how do we account for humanity? The birth of humanity. As you probably know, and Father Bob has caught the disease I have and has probably spread it to you, that we talk about the birth of culture and the founding violence and how a primordial primitive religion comes out of scapegoating rituals and so on. It's absolutely true. So don't take a thing away from that. But one has to go back and say, look at the Bible. It doesn't start there. The Bible starts before. The Bible starts with the man and the woman. So we have to ask ourselves about that. Maybe I should read a biblical text before I get into this. Yeah, I want to do this. Hans-Urs von Balthasar, on the question of reversing naturalism, instead of saying we are who we are because of where we came from, we say we're built this way because this is the best way to be built in order to be predisposed to that great Christian mystery of self-donation. That the way we're made takes us in that direction, makes it more possible for that to happen. And von Balthasar says something similar to that in terms of sacramentality. He says, now it's a little, this is a translation, it's a little bit awkward. He says, we are not allowing the archetypal formative power of the life of the God-man in its full validity if we regard the sacraments as defined and differentiated by various basic situations in human life and the life of the church with Christ's grace applying and adapting itself to them. In other words, if we just say, well, we have sacraments because everybody gets married, we like to bring people into the communion, so we have baptism, confirmation, we have these various things, that ordination, people die or get sick. and we have. In other words, sacraments come in on the top of this very natural order and sort of throw a little holy water on them. And von Balthasar just says you miss it that way. And the Pope is absolutely emphatic on that same point. On the contrary, von Balthasar says, the sacrament of marriage is not some sort of neutral supernatural blessing on a natural institution. Rather, it contains within itself the true meaning, the true substance of marriage, 
And this reality of marriage draws men into the relationship between the Lord and His church, which is the foundation and justification of every marriage. And this goes to that passage in Ephesians about marriage being synonymous with the life of Christ in the church. But that's Jesus to someplace else. So what I want to do now is just uh, do something with Genesis 2 and then come back to the birth of humanity. Here's how it goes. This is several verses in Genesis 2. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. You know, there are two Genesis, there are two creation stories. The first, male and female, he made them. In the image of God, male and female. That's absolutely incredibly powerful, that. Second creation story starts all over again, as though none of that has happened. And God creates Adam. And Adam is Adam. The word just means mankind. Uh, So there's Adam. And then the Lord says, it is not good that man should be alone. You know, in 1 John we're told, in him there is no darkness. In God there is no darkness. I like to think, in him there is no oops. Meaning, it's not as though he did something, oh, whoops, that didn't work. i got to fix it now. You see what I mean? But this story tells us And the Pope spends a lot of time on this. I mean, pages and pages on this. At first, there is this original solitude. And this original solitude functions existentially in the far distant past and existentially in each of our lives. How? Original solitude makes us aware of an absence. Original solitude makes us aware of an absence that is not really absent, otherwise we wouldn't feel solitude. It's palpably absent, you could say. It makes us feel that there's something else. There's something else. So the second creation story, which is really chronologically the first creation story, has this period of solitude where Adam is there, but there's nobody else. And to make it dramatic, God says, it is not good that man should be alone. Why is it not good that man should be alone? Just between me and you, because alone we cannot be human. 